These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today, we will sing the Song of Release. This is a much more diverse and mysterious tablet than the Coomerby cycle, which we concluded last week. Both the structure and purpose of what follows is not 100% clear. From the title, we get a sense in particular of release from debt or slavery, indicating that this was somehow related either to the periodic jubilees that Near Eastern kings would occasionally pronounce, or to an individual's clearing of his own debt, or perhaps to an individual release from slavery. Additionally, the text itself is of historical interest because it contains both Hurrian and Hittite side by side in parallel columns, one of the handful of texts which allows for the decipherment of the Hurrian language, much like how the Rosetta Stone helped in translating Egyptian hieroglyphics. Really, though, I've done a poor job already of selling you on this tablet because it's simply a hard text to describe, though fascinating to read, made up of history, myth, and wisdom literature all smushed together. And so I'm mostly just going to read it to you. It begins with a promium, which would give us a lot of good hints as to what the whole document is, if it was complete. Instead, it begins, I will tell of Teshub, the great king of Kumia. I will praise the young woman Alani, who guards the locks of the netherworld. In addition, I will speak of the young woman Ishara, a skilled goddess, famous for her wisdom. I will speak of the man Pizakara, who will bring destruction to Ebla. And then ten more lines presumably once told us how these diverse characters were related, but these have been lost. And then we have a series of parables. It can be argued that these may be the earliest explicit parables, since while there are similar works in Sumerian and Akkadian, none are quite as clear about their moral content as these. Undoubtedly, the oral form of this storytelling is much older, but by my estimation, this is the oldest version of this particular story form. The form itself can be seen quite clearly at the very first parable, which goes like this. A mountain expelled a deer from its lands. The deer went over to another mountain. It grew fat on the new mountain, but soon became discontented and began to curse the new mountain. If only a fire would burn up the mountain on which I'm grazing. If only Teshub would strike it with lightning, and the resulting fire would burn up the mountain. Now, when the mountain heard this, its heart became sick with the deer, and cursed the deer in return. Why does the deer, which I have fattened, now curse me in return? Let hunters fell that deer. Let fowlers or trappers take it. Let hunters take its meat, and let the trappers take its hide. But this is not a deer, the parable explains. It is a human being. That man is he who ran away from his own city, and now arrived in another country. When he became discontented with the new city, he began to plot evil against it. And so, the gods have made him accursed and wretched. So goes Parable 1 of the Song of Release. 
This was a particularly relevant bit of wisdom for the Hurrians, since they quite frequently emigrated to the cities of non-Hurrian nations, and Hurrian craftsmen and workers can be found in lists as far away as Egypt. Also, if we consider the Song of Release to be a tale told during a release of either one slave or a whole class of slaves, this too would be particularly relevant for them. Presumably, some amount of free slaves would desire to change cities just on principle now that they have freedom. But of course, this wisdom is timeless, having application even today. For example, among former Californians who moved to Texas, then complain about how Texas isn't just like the state they left. A little bit of divine cursing might keep those California exodites away from local ballot boxes. The parable, as presented, is simple and universal wisdom, wrapped in an easily digestible format for even the least intelligent audience. In that sense, even if it seems a bit too simple by modern sensibilities, the parable shows itself to be a well-crafted little text, its very brevity and lack of subtlety giving power to its moral lesson. But as the tablet says now, leave that tale, and I will tell you another tale. Hear my message. I will tell you an instructive example. There is a deer. It grazes those pastures which are on the near side of the river, and yet it constantly sets its eyes on the pastures of the far side of the river. It did not care for the pastures on the near side, which it already had, but it never could gain the ones on the far side. But this is not a deer. It is a human being. That man whom his lord makes into a border commander, they make him commander of one district, but he constantly sets his eyes on a second district. The curse that the gods will always lay upon a man like that is that he'll never care about his own district, but he'll never be able to obtain the other district. Here's another timeless bit of wisdom, so timeless in fact that we still talk about how the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. There is a sense that this particular version of the parable has in mind a very particular border commander who must suffer from this problem, but of course the tale of the deer could easily be told and followed up with many other human examples. Perhaps most interesting here is that the gods themselves will prevent the man or deer with a wandering eye from achieving what he desires for so long as he fails to appreciate what he's already been given. Since, of course, in the Near Eastern view, the land that the man or deer has already been given was given by the gods, regardless of his own efforts or those of his ancestors. Nothing happens without the will of the gods, and if the gods wanted you to have that second parcel, well, then you'd have it already. But leave that story, and I'll tell you another story. Listen to my message, and I'll tell you an instructive example. A coppersmith capsed a cup for his own glory. He cast it and finished it. He provided it with attachments and engraved it. He made them gleam on it with brilliance. Then the foolish copper cup began to curse in return him who had cast it. If only the hand of him who had cast me would be broken. If only his right arm muscle would be paralyzed. When the coppersmith heard that, he was pained at heart. The coppersmith began to say to himself, Why does this copper which I have cast curse me in return? 
So the coppersmith pronounced a curse on the cup. May Teshub strike this cup and tear off all its attachments. May the cup fall into an irrigation ditch. May the attachments fall into the river. Now, but this is not a cup, but a human being. It is that son who is hostile towards his father. He grew up and reached adulthood and no longer looks at his father. And this son has been cursed for this impiety by the gods. Of course, the notion of the father as a craftsman of his children will find its way even into the Bible, a metaphor which will endure for well over a thousand years to make its way into the Old Testament and from there into Paul's letter to the Romans. There, the father is God, but the message is the same. The craftsmen craft for their own glory, and a father makes children magnificent that these sons will enhance his own glory. We might wonder why a splendidly wrought cup could ever have cause to grow upset at the one who fashioned it. But here too, no matter how fine a cup it is, that cup can always imagine itself to be, have been fashioned greater. The cup, ungrateful for what it's already been given, desires more. And though a cup cannot fashion itself, it curses the one who did fashion it, the one who's already done more than the cup itself ever could. Here again, we see a clear message, to be content with what you have. Indeed, it's underlay all three of the parables thus far, a cultural subtext to the explicit point. But of course, the explicit point is one rarely advanced in modern society, at least if modern kids' television programming is anything to go by. Parents in modern kids' shows are routinely cast as morons, and the child actors are frequently rude to them, showing up their elders in a way that modern culture believes to be empowering for the youth. For a Hurrian, however, or really any culture of the Bronze Age Near East, a child who is disrespectful and unappreciative of his father has failed at the very first step of morality. And of course, all three of these tales concern a man who has been given something quite appropriate for someone who has been released from either debt or slavery. It shouldn't be too hard to imagine a paternalistic former master lecturing a slave on his last day, teaching him how to be a good man. But leave that tale, I will tell you another tale. Hear my instructions, I will tell you an instructive example. There was a piece of kugula bread sitting out in front of the oven, cooling off. The dog who was to guard the bread grabs the bread and runs off with it. Then he knocks over a jar of oil and dips the bread into the oil for flavor, then sits down on the porch to eat it all. This is not a dog, but a human being. He whom his lord made the governor of a region. He took increased tribute behind the backs of his citizens. The people became very discontented. The governor is no longer looking after the city. The citizens managed to inform on him before the lord. He began to pour out before his lord all those items of tribute he was constantly swallowing. And this tale lacks a bit of the simplicity of the others and is perhaps too brief even after adding a few explanatory notes. But the best I can figure, someone was given responsibility over something, either bread or a town, and ate that bread or wealth of the town instead of guarding it for the lord. 
the punishment for this was being made to regurgitate all the eaten things, though despite this, it's likely that corruption was just as common in the ancient world as it is in the modern world, even if the exact forms of the corruption have shifted over time. This is the only one of the parables which does not immediately appear to have relevance to a person released from debt or slavery. Though perhaps the advice to not be corrupt, or perhaps the implicit subtext that citizens should report corruption, was simply deemed to be generally acceptable to all. Curiously, this parable is then repeated verbatim, with no change to either the story or the moral, except that the mention of a dog has been replaced by something called a galushi animal, perhaps a breed of dog or an animal quite similar to a dog, but whose exact translation has been lost. Parable number six begins, Leave that tale. I will tell you another tale. Here are the instructions, and I will give you an instructive example. A builder built a tower for his glory, and dug its foundation trenches deep down to the sun goddess of the netherworld. He brought its battlements up near to the sky. The foolish wall began to curse the one who built it. If only the arm of him who built me was broken. If only his right arm muscles were paralyzed. The builder heard this and became sad in his heart, saying to himself, Why is the wall which I built cursing me? Then the builder uttered a curse on the tower. Let Teshub strike this tower. Let him expose its foundation stones upon it. Let its bricks fall down into the ditch. Let its bricks fall down into the river. This is not a tower, but a human being. That son who is hostile towards his father. He grew up and reached maturity, and now no longer regards his father. Therefore, the father's gods have made him accursed. We've seen this moral attached to the tale of the copper cup, and indeed the two stories are almost identical. One wonders if perhaps the scribe who wrote this was simply collecting many similar parables, including even slight variations, or if perhaps this was meant to repeat itself turning a passionate oral telling into a harangue, with the advice-giver unafraid to repeat himself if it gets this message pounded into his listener's foolish head. And of course, any time we see a tall tower in Bronze Age myth, we have to question whether or not it relates to the biblical Tower of Babel, or similarly to Enmerkar's reference to a time of great unity, and tall towers way back in episode one of this podcast. But if there is a connection here to some commonly known eastern tale of a tall tower, that story has been repurposed to fit the new moral, and is, at best, only tenuously connected. I believe that tale, and I'll tell you another tale. Here are my instructions. I will tell you an instructive example. Wood was laid to be cut by a saw. They've split up the wood now, and a donkey is carrying it away. A stacker takes that wood from the donkey and makes a pile by a canal for further transport by boat. The bottom of this pile is so large it reaches the netherworld, and the top of this pile is so large it reaches up to heaven. And the foolish wood cursed the man who stacked it. He who stacked me, if only his hand had been broken, if only his right arm muscles were paralyzed. The stacker heard the wood and grew angry in his heart. The stacker said, 
Why is this wood which I'm stacking cursing me? And the stacker uttered a curse of his own on the wood. Let Teshub strike it, and may it fall into the irrigation ditch. Let its bark be scattered in the water. This is not a wood pile. It's a human being, the apprentice who belittles his master. But he will die in a ditch, or perhaps, like a dog, he'll die under a chair. Again, this tale is similar to the last, but the specific relationship is between master and apprentice, not father and son, though the two were often analogous in Bronze Age cultures. Still, the message is clear. Be content with your position. Be appreciative of what you've received, and treat those above you, father, master, city, king, and god, with utmost respect. The connection between a release from slavery or debt is a bit tenuous, but it can sort of be seen if you squint. And if we read this as just general advice, everything here seems reasonable enough. I don't know that a modern book of advice would focus so exclusively on the values that the Hurrians focused on, but that's the joy of foreign cultures with different values. It'll take more than squinting to make sense of the next story in the tablet. There is a lot of fascinating historical detail that we can get into as we move from parables into narratives, but we don't actually know where any of the narratives go. We have four sets of a few short paragraphs, and all appear to be excerpts from two much larger stories. My own guess is that these two were parables, though we're missing a lot. Not just the moral at the end, but we're missing enough of the narrative to even guess at what the meaning may have been. Of course, these could just have been stories without the clear moral lessons of the preceding parables. But again, it's, it's hard to say just what the next stories are, really. However, I'm going to read these because they are a very... <clears throat> However, I'm going to read these because what they are very good for is providing small illustrations of what daily life among the elite looked like, especially this first episode detailing a feast. There is so little hurry in material that I feel compelled to read all the good accounts we have, especially since we can reasonably assume that the activities of the gods here are at least somewhat analogous to what the upper class aspired to in terms of lifestyle. Our story, sometimes called the Feast of the Goddess Alani, when considered separately from the Song of Release as a whole, begins suddenly. When Teshub went, he set out to the palace of Alani. Now, we know who Teshub is. He is the storm god, and by now the established king of the Hurrian gods. Alani, however, is a Hurrian underworld goddess. While she is most likely a native goddess herself, we see her here taking on many of the same duties as the Sumerian underworld goddess Ereshkigal. <coughs> anyway, when Teshub arrives, a chair was set up for him. When Teshub the king comes in from outside, Teshub sat down high on a throne. The seat of this throne was about 3,600 square meters. That is one fat butt. He raised his feet on a footstool which was similarly massive. It isn't quite clear if this is Teshub's own throne we're talking about here or if we're already in the netherworld somewhere. 
Either way, the point is Teshub's magnificence and splendor, which must always be emphasized the way modern Christians are always praising the splendor of their own God. In the next paragraph, Teshub and his brother Tasmusu make their way down to the dark netherworld, and Alani girded herself for work. She goes back and forth in front of Teshub, and there at the very bolts of the underworld, the great gates that keep the living separate from the dead, Alani made a fine feast. It isn't clear why Teshub is heading down to the underworld, or if it's his idea or Alani's, but one guess is that we're seeing something tangentially related to the aftermath of the Kumarbi cycle. Teshub, as a sky god, may be coming to the underworld for this feast as a way to repair relations with the underworld gods, who have been supporting Kumarbi's line in the struggle for power. Alani is doing her part to make the reconciliation a success by working her butt off for an absolutely massive divine feast. How massive is it? Alani slaughtered 10,000 cattle before the mighty Teshub, as well as 30,000 sheep and so many goats that they're beyond counting. Not only is this food for the gods, it's also a ritual sacrifice, doing the king of gods a double honor. The fact that so much slaughter may have made the feast hall into more of an abattoir is beside the point. We should instead focus on the idea that quite a lot of wealth is being displayed and quite a lot of respect is being given. With this wholesale slaughter, the bakers have time to get their wares ready, putting out baked goods for the guests. Then the cupbearers came in with fresh drinks for the assembled crowd, who we must assume to be more than just Teshub, Tasmasu, and Alani, even though they are our focuses here. Next, the cook brought out brisket made from the sacrifices, bringing it out in huge bowls. With this, mealtime arrived, and Teshub finally moved from his massive throne, on which he was watching the whole event, to the dining table. But Alani seated the primeval deities on Teshub's right side. Now that word, but, seems to indicate that there was a mistake in this seating arrangement. Perhaps Teshub was supposed to be subordinate to the primeval gods, or perhaps some other ordering was most correct. But in our fragment, we hear no more about it, so maybe the but is just a poor word choice to transition the tale to the next place. And in fact, Teshub at the head with primeval gods at the honored right hand was in fact the correct placement. Whatever the case, Alani in her seat choices is publicly exalting Teshub foremost and the primeval gods next, and anyone else at the party is beneath them. Alani herself stepped up to act as Teshub's cupbearer. Her fingers were long, probably indicating that she was quite attractive. The drink she poured was delicious. And then, whatever the point of all this setup was, is lost. Nothing more of the story remains, and when the tablet picks up, we're in a quasi-historical narrative in the city of Ebla. Perhaps the tale followed some social conflict amid the feast, or perhaps it was never anything more than a description of a lavish feast, perhaps intending to honor the gods by offering a description of a nice time as a symbolic offering. Perhaps the divine feast accompanied some ritual that a man freed of debt would undertake. Sadly, there isn't enough to even guess. 
When the clay picks back up, we're in a new narrative, in a new city. The town of Ebla was for many generations in our early history the primary rival of Mari in the Syrian region. By now, that rivalry is long since past. It's just another mid-sized city rising and falling with the centuries, submitting to greater powers that come knocking and reclaiming their ancient independence when the opportunity arises. By the late Bronze Age, they've seen a large amount of hurry and migration into their city, and it's entirely possible that this whole song of release comes from there. We can only list it as a possibility, because this tablet, like the hurrying tales of the Kumarbi cycle, are only known from the ruins of the Hittite capital, Hattusha, divorced from their original context and preserved by the Hittites as much as a trophy of how much they conquered as for any other purpose. In any case, our final tale, which is also fragmentary, puts us in the town council of the city of Ebla, where we learn that there is no one who speaks against him among the elders of the council. There is no one who can present an effective argument against him. If ever there was in the city of Ebla a powerful orator whose words no one could counter, Zazala is that powerful orator. No one can equal his speech in the assembly hall. Zazala the orator begins to say to Megi, another counselor, Why do you speak in favor of compliance, O Megi, star of Ebla? What is Megi in favor of that Zazala is opposed to? As usual, this fragment breaks off at the best point, but when it picks up, we can see quite clearly that these two leading lights of the Ebla Town Council are debating whether or not the city should have a jubilee, a universal cancellation of debts, which would also include a freeing of debt slaves. Here, we see the episode most closely related to the ostensible title of the entire work. Zazala's opening argument is lost, but he is countered by Megi. Megi's position is not clear in this story, but he appears to be the ruler of the city in some capacity. Not an absolute king, for he appears to need the support of the council to get his jubilee passed, but still apparently the man responsible for implementing policies. What if it was Teshub? King of the gods, asks Megi. What if Teshub is oppressed by debt and asks for help? If Teshub was ever in debt for silver, then surely everyone in this chamber would give a portion of silver to Teshub. We would each give half a shekel of gold or even a whole shekel of silver to Teshub. But if Teshub is ever hungry, surely each of us would give him a 50-liter bag of barley to eat. Or even if we can only get him a half bag, we would offer him that, and others would offer full bags until Teshub was full. But if Teshub is ever naked, surely we'd offer him an article of clothing from our own home till he was fully clothed in a fine garment worthy of the god. And if he were ever dried out from the heat of the day, surely we would each give him a small flask. Or... If he suffered from the cold of night, we would give him fuel for his fire, and we'll see to his needs, for he is a fine god. But Zali quickly fires back to Megi, condemning his own hypocrisy in the face of this speech. For sure, we could rescue the mighty god Teshub, king of the gods, from falling into debt. But who is it exactly that you think could dare to oppress him? He's the king of the gods. 
I'm not refusing to help Deshub. I'm refusing to help slaves. There will be no rejoicing in your soul with this, O oh Meggy. Neither will there be rejoicing in the soul of Pura, the man of Ikinkal, for we will not release the citizens of Ikinkal, whom we have enslaved when we recently took over that city. Here's my reasoning, explains Zazala the orator. If we were to release our slaves, who would give us food to eat? With one hand there are cupbearers, and with the other they serve our food. They are our cooks, and they do the washing after the meal. The woolen threads they spin are as strong as thick air. But you, Maggie, if you wish for a general jubilee, I call upon you to first release your own slaves, every last one of them. Not just that, give your son away, send your wife back to her father. Live here with us, O oh Maggie, in the town of Ebla, without anyone to provide for you. Now, there is certainly a lot that is shocking to a modern ear in Zazala's very forthright defense of slavery. But perhaps most remarkable is the direct equivalating of Meggie's wife and son with his slaves. There honestly isn't that much I can say to elaborate on that. A Bronze Age household was a patriarchy in a way that's hard for us to even comprehend nowadays. In any case, Maggie hears the devastating rebuke of Zazali and weeps. Not because he's opposed to the immoral society in which he lives, but because he's been so solidly beaten in the debate. He weeps and bows before Teshub, who, as a fellow ruler, should presumably be on his side in this. Speaking to Teshub, he cries out, Hear me, O Teshub, great king of Kumia. I will keep on sending the Jubilee petition to the council, but the council will not approve it. Zazala, son of Pazanikari, will not allow a general debt remission. And so Megi did what he could personally, clearing all the debts within the city of Ebla owed to the throne particularly. With this partial success, Megi appears to get the god Teshub on his side. We lost another good section here, but it appears that Meggie has continued to push for general debt forgiveness, not just within Ebla, but within her subject cities as well. There is some hard-to-understand passage describing these vassal kingdoms and how many kings are subject to Ebla, including Pura, the king of Ikinkal, who may be a prisoner in Ebla. That, that part's not clear. Anyway, at a certain point, Teshub himself gets involved in the discussion, telling Meggie the following. If you make a debt remission in Ebla, the city of the throne, I will exalt your weapons with great blessings. Your weapons will begin to conquer your enemies. Your plowed land will prosper in glory. But if you do not make a debt remission in Ebla, the capital city, then in seven days I will come upon you and curse your bodies. I will destroy the city of Ebla, the city of the throne. I will make it like a city which never existed. I will break the wall surrounding Ebla's lower city like a cup. I will trample down the wall surrounding the upper city like a clay pit. In the midst of the market, I will break Ebla like a clay cup. With my power, I will carry off its riches. The rest of Teshub's threats are unclear, but the general gist is not hard to figure out. 
very similar to the biblical book of Chronicles. God himself is coming down to demand a jubilee and threatening destruction if the government does not comply. In the Bible, the people of Israel ignored this and were destroyed. Well, this broken section concludes the song of release that has survived to this day. We want to say that this divine threat finally swayed the Council of Eblam and got a general release of debt and slaves declared within the city. But we do have a hint back in the Promium that in fact Ebla was destroyed, probably as a result of failing to heed the god. Of course, if there was a great jubilee, then it was likely that that was the occasion for commissioning this particular tale, which then migrated north to be recorded in its final form in the Hittite capital, a moral lesson about the value of lessers obeying their masters within the parables, and of masters giving mercy to their lessers here in the tale of Ebla. Otherwise, this last episode may well be one more parable accompanying a general discussion of debt and slavery, perhaps made on the occasion of a particular man's release from debt slavery. Whatever the case, with this, we've transitioned from Hurrian myth to Hurrian history. But, as has already been mentioned, our sources for Hurrian and Mitanni history are thin on the ground. Fortunately, however, there is a single point of interest for late Bronze Age Hurrians, one place where a bit of information on these people can be gleaned. This is the city of Nuzi, a moderately successful town of merchants, not too far from the great city of Asher. Archaeologists have discovered a number of tablets in their excavations of this town, but Nuzi was not a great political center. It was just an average city in a very dispersed empire. And so, the amount of things we can learn about the Mitanni political order in general is pretty small. However, we are in the fairly rare position of being able to follow individuals and families over time, as their business dealings and legal records have been preserved in the houses of Nuzi. In lieu of a traditional political history like I've done for the other empires up until now, our look into the political history of Mitanni will mostly be through these quite personal, small-scale Nuzi texts. And so join us next time as we take a look at 3,500-year-old legal disputes over land inheritance and see how even in the Bronze Age, and even without warfare, the rich tended to get richer and the poor tended to get poorer. Thank you for listening.